What role do colleges and universities play in building an anti-racist future? This podcast series, Building the Anti-Racist College and University, seeks to begin examining this question. Through interviews with administrators, faculty, researchers, policy experts, historians, and students, each episode in this series examines one important piece of beginning to conceptualize anti-racist colleges and universities of the present and future. This series was produced as part of a term project during fall 2020 for Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, United States. The foundation for this project was Ibram Kendi's 2019 text, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Each student in the course designed one episode seeking to unpack, question, problematize, or dissect a particular area related to building anti-racist colleges and universities. The series in no way is exhaustive, prescriptive, or capable of answering every question. But collectively, the series adds to an ongoing conversation in higher education about anti-racist futures. We hope it inspires dialogue, reflection, engagement, and action on colleges and universities in the United States and around the world. We hope it inspires ongoing work, research, activism, policy, local, regional, national, and international action. We hope it brings us one step closer to an anti-racist future in post-secondary education. This episode is The Racist Roots of Developmental Education. Welcome. My name is Kate Dumont, and I am a doctoral student in the Higher Education Leadership Program at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. In addition, I currently serve as the Dean of Student Success and Enrollment Management at Lone Star College University Park in Houston, Texas. I'm excited to dedicate this podcast episode to discussing the students who test below college level in reading, writing, and or math, and are therefore required to take developmental classes before they can pursue college-level coursework toward their selected degree. As part of this episode, I will engage with two higher education professionals who currently serve in roles that support this increasing number of quote-unquote underprepared students. In addition, we will talk about how the majority of these underprepared students come from traditionally underserved populations and then discuss what is currently being done at open access institutions like community colleges to engage and support Black and Hispanic students to be successful. The effectiveness of various developmental education programs and models has been studied and researched extensively with mixed results. Whether or not developmental education is serving to support racial minorities or perpetuate systems of oppression in higher education is a difficult dilemma to dissect and to resolve. As part of this podcast, however, we are going to get some inside information from community college educators about how these underprepared and underrepresented students of color are being supported both inside and outside of the classroom. So without further ado, let's get started with my first guest. 
I'm so happy to welcome Susan Georgeson, Developmental Mathematics Instructor at Lone Star College. She will talk a little bit about her experiences working with underprepared students in the classroom. She will also share some information about traditionally underserved populations and her experience serving those students. Well, again, uh, as you said, my name is Susan Georgeson. I have been teaching for eight years at the community college level. Well, thanks for joining me to discuss developmental education from your point of view as a developmental instructor at a community college, and one that is actually designated as a Hispanic Serving Institution, or HSI for short. I'm curious, though, to know what you perceive as the biggest challenges for your students each semester, and how those challenges may differ between Black and Hispanic students compared to their white counterparts. Sure. Um, probably the, the number one reason um, that I see as far as like a challenge to a student's success in a class is work. Uh, so a lot of students will be working, given that I have a lot of students <laughs> that are straight out of high school, um, a lot of them are in the service industry. And so they want people at work when they want them at work, and they're not necessarily as flexible in, um, in working through work and school schedules um, with their students. So work tends to be a biggest challenge. Um, prior to COVID, it was uh, just a scheduling of work. Post-COVID, I have had students uh, that have come to me whose spouses have lost a job or who, whose parent has lost a job. And even though they haven't, they have to pick up extra work or extra hours. And so they can't necessarily spend it focused on class. Especially whenever we, we went to um, a, from face-to-face -face to an online class, the students, I guess, felt that they were uh, their their hours more, were more flexible, so they ended up scheduling more work hours, thinking that they could <laughs> do school whenever they got a chance, and and that doesn't always work. Uh, so work is primarily um, the the biggest challenge. Um, I would say that um, really that's across the board. Maybe a little bit more for the other and the African American students uh, as the white students. I would say that a higher percentage of white students don't have to worry about work as much as their, their other counterparts. The second biggest challenge is family. So we have a lot of students that are still living at home and their parents expect them to take care of a younger sibling or a family member, that type of thing. And out of that challenge, I think probably the biggest race that's impacted by that is the Hispanic community because they are truly family oriented and, you know, their parents expect them to watch after their, you know, their young, younger siblings. Um, so as far as, as that goes, I would guess probably more Hispanic, though it certainly doesn't preclude the other, you know, the other races from having that, that challenge as well. And then the last challenge is strictly students not caring, um, not putting forth any effort. Um, I do have students like that in every single class I do. Um, a lot of that depends on how they were raised. You know, are they a first generation college student? Do their parents <laughs> support them in being in college? And I right. think a lot of times with developmental, a lot of it has to do with the effort and the engagement they put into the class. Wow, this is really great anecdotal information that you're sharing, and it really brings me to think about the Texas House Bill 2223, which was passed in the summer of 2018 and implemented shortly thereafter in the fall semester of 2018. 
So that our audience is aware, Texas House Bill 2223, what we commonly refer to here in Texas as HB 2223 or just 2223, requires that publicly funded institutions in Texas offer their developmental education courses in a co-requisite format. Susan, how do you see this affecting your developmental students, and what do you consider the positive and negative impacts of this legislation? So, well, first of all, so we had at our college, um, we had a Math 306, which was like a pre-algebra type class. We have a 308, which is an introduction to algebra, and then we had a 310, which is intermediate algebra, and that fed straight into college algebra. And the 306, um, which are the basic basics, we teach how to add numbers, you know, what is a percent, that type of thing. So some very basic information, basic math. We've moved that into our continuing education for adults. Then we had 308 and 310. With the enactment of 2223, we started out with 25% being placed into developmental math had to be correct with a college credit class. Right. From before, you were going two classes prior to college algebra, co-wrecking them with a college algebra class. Wow. And so with the with the 310 and college algebra, the people who were teaching that co-rec really did an excellent job. And I know one of your questions is, you know, what positives and what negatives have we seen from this house bill? Our college really did a great job of creating a workbook so that we could teach a just-in-time model where we teach the concept immediately before we teach what they need to know in college algebra that day. So one of the positives is that they, they were able to do this. The detriment came when we started, and so we, we saw some success, and I don't have the success numbers for that because I don't teach that particular co-rec, but when you are co-recking 308 class, two classes behind college credit class, we see a lot more failure. They just don't have the skills to do both at the same time. That being said, my thoughts on that state-mandated requirement is I feel that the legislatures who are making the laws are either not familiar or they're so far removed from that time that they are not considering the student, the developmental student, they are considering how much they have to pay out. From what I understand, it's more of a financial or fast tracking students through. You know, we're seeing the positive that they can get through faster but the negative is that you have a lot of students who don't know the basics and, and, and most people who come in and you heard developmental math students, they get really flustered at having to do math. And that's at the developmental phase. Now throw the fact that they have to take that at the same time as a college credit math, and there's some serious stress going on. I think that we are doing a great disservice, and I think 22-23 is not effective for the majority. I mean, right now they're saying, you know, starting fall of 2021, it doesn't matter whether you're a developmental student, whether you know math or, or English or not, you have to take your developmental at the same time that you're taking your credit level math. 
So then based on your earlier comments about students' external responsibilities of working extra hours and taking care of family members, would it be safe to say that a requirement to take two math classes, the developmental and the college level at the same time, is adding an additional layer of stress? And do you hear this from your students? I know that they're having, you know, that they're, ha- they're working extra. I know since COVID, they have had to focus more on their work and being able to have that income versus not um, due to a loss of income of one of their family members, whether it's a parent, a spouse, or anything else like that. The other thing, while we're on financial, a detriment that I have seen is that when students are taking a developmental class, first of all, it's three hours versus six hours. So the students who are correct into a college credit class are taking six hours of math. So it may be that maybe they can't afford it. And so that's why they're only taking one class at a time. But also when you are taking a developmental correct with a college level and they don't do well and they have to drop, then that puts them in in the possibility of losing financial aid. Right. And so this brings up something else that we often see in community colleges with regards to part-time student status. The vast majority of community college students are part-time. So how do you see this affecting students' confidence and or their engagement? I, I will tell you that from our perspective, and I can just tell you because I know the people who created the, the workbook and that type of thing, they did it across the board based on level of knowledge of mathematics. So if you think about students who are taking part-time college, you know, the students who are are truly having to work to make a living may be able to only take one college class. They might be able to handle only three credit hours, but yet they are having to take six, which again, adds to that challenge of work, work being the biggest challenge and being able to do that. So they might be able to do a three hour class, but to put them into a situation where they have to do six, sometimes it's not just a understanding, but it's also a time issue. So what it sounds like from your perspective is that the financial situation of a student and the amount of time they are focused on their employment has a much more substantial impact on a student's success as opposed to their race alone. Or do you think it is a combination of several of these factors? I would agree with that. I absolutely would. You still have the issue of, you know, how a student is raised, you know, Hispanic versus African-American, you know, versus Asian. Uh, And then I would say white after that, then I would say, you know, Hispanic and black are probably about the same, you know, as far as familial support um, of them being in school. But yeah, I would definitely, you know, I would say work, um, family issues, you know, but I, I would say overall work, and then family obligations, and then, and in some things, I mean, maturity is another thing. You know, you've got so many different backgrounds that come uh, into developmental education, and it's fun to watch them grow. It's, it's exciting to watch them grow. The people that I see succeed, those are the ones that those teachers, they encourage they, they have that encouragement. If they don't have it at home, but you can have it from your professor, that encouragement goes a long way as an equalizer. It is amazing what an, a word of encouragement, being able to engage your students, if they're engaged in the class, you're going to have a higher 
success rate, you know, whether it's developmental or credit level costs. So from that perspective, I would hope that this co-rec education, uh, as far as co-rec classes, legislatively speaking, is truly a financial. But I would also say that maybe it impacts anybody who has to work a job to earn money for their family. That puts them at a disadvantage because they're having to take two classes at once and they may not be able to put forth that time or put forth that effort. So so I see a connection there. Well, of course, we both know from our own experiences, encouragement in any form provides confidence and belief in oneself. And like you, Susan, it is my hope that HB 2223 was created to encourage student success and assist underprepared students in being successful in their developmental classes, but also in their overall college degree plans. I so appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on this developmental co-requisite model from your perspective as a faculty member. Thanks. You're so welcome. Now that we have a little better understanding about the ways in which underprepared and underserved students are served inside the classroom from an instructional viewpoint, I would like to change gears a bit and get some insight into how these students are and can be supported in other ways outside of the classroom. I'd like to now welcome Ms. Afra Hassan to the show as an esteemed colleague and great friend. Ms. Hassan has served in various administrative roles within higher education for more than 17 years and currently serves as the Associate Dean of Student Engagement and Success at Houston Community College in Houston, Texas. She assumed this role back in 2018 and continues to find innovative ways to support students at her campus. Welcome, Afra. Sure. Thank you, Kate. I'm excited to be here to talk a little bit about higher ed and development of education. Well, I am so very thrilled to have you. I'd first like to talk a little bit about the support services that are available for students in higher education and more specifically about students in developmental education coursework, also referred to as underprepared students. Can you talk a little bit about some of the data that you collect at your institution and what those support services for underprepared students in developmental education coursework look like and how they access or utilize those services? Yeah, great question. So historically, um, our, under, our underrepresented students are students of color. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of them are unprepared and they are unaware of a lot of the services that we do offer. Uh, but what I've seen lately, probably within the last five years, is really has been a kind of like this shift, this paradigm shift, where I'm seeing more students of color take advantage of supportive services that are available on campus, for example, counseling and ADA services or tutoring, as I mentioned earlier. Um, I just looked at the numbers today. We had somewhere between like 51% of African-American students, 50% 50, 50 of Hispanic students, 12% um, of white students, which in the past has been completely flipped, um, that are really starting to take advantage of a lot of these supportive services all part in uh, um, promoting, which I think that the college could really do a better job at, at the supportive services. Um, but, you know, I think the academic departments do a good job of really trying to highlight and promote these programs so our students are better prepared and better successful at the, uh, towards the end of the semester. Um, I really applaud the academic departments promoting, um, at, you know, they do different incentives. So, you know, you may get an incentive, uh, get a couple of points in a class 
for seeking out um, seeking out tutoring or seeking out career services. One of the things I like about um, our student success courses is the first week they have to kind of do a scavenger hunt. And part of that scavenger hunt is find out well, what department does this, who does this, what does this. I really like that because oftentimes students come here, they register and they don't know about anything else but their classes. They don't know about anything here to make them successful. And I think that as a community college and a college that I work for as big as it is, um, those, those programs are so vital, so important. They're so successful. And I think we could do a whole lot more to really kind of gauge our students, to promote these uh, supportive services so that our students, so that we can retain them, number one, and so that they can be more successful, especially when it comes to developmental education courses. Oh, I absolutely agree about the importance of supportive services for students. But I think you mentioned that you also have other specific programs to support students specifically that are underprepared or of traditionally underserved populations. Can you talk a little bit more about those programs and what they encompass? Yeah, definitely. So the Male Minority Initiative, and, and I, I know that a lot of the, co uh, the colleges and universities around the country has a, has a program like that or something similar. The, the purpose of that is really a mentoring program to make sure that one, we get more males and men of color into the doors of higher education, um, mentor these, these, uh, these gentlemen, make them more successful, talk about what not only what their goals are, but what pathway after they leave our institution is available for them. So I think a program like the the MMI is so vital to a lot of guy, a lot of male students, and really not just minority students. You know, we you know we open it up really to anyone who's interested in wanting to be mentored, anyone want, needing additional assistance. Uh, but we know that historically and statistically, men of color tend to fall by the wayside. Oftentimes, they may be a little bit unprepared. So really having a group like the Male Minority Initiative is so critical and so vital in retention and retaining students and retaining these men and just making them overall more successful. And I've, I've really enjoyed it just seeing how, you know, we have kind of kind of like a little mini ceremony for them at the end of the, end of the year. Oh, we get true. to hear what their experience has been. And overall, you know, a lot of them say, you know, I don't know if I would have last or I would have quit if it wasn't for a program like Male Minority Initiative. And one of the things I like about uh, HCC is that we work very closely with our four-year partners, uh, which helps them to be even more success successful because it's one thing going from one institution to another, but it can be very confusing and very scary for a lot of our students who've never stepped foot on a, on a college campus. So those programs among so many others have been really critical and vital to um, how success, uh, student success when it comes to men and people of color. Wow, Afra, what a great program. I'm so happy to hear that the MMI is being implemented and is so successful at HCC. Um, and shifting gears, and because we connect regularly, I know you have another initiative to provide support to students at HCC, um, which has really targeted underprepared students upon its creation a few years ago. Can you tell our audience a little bit about HCC's care team and how that has supported your students in recent years? So we implemented uh, the care team model a couple of years ago, about two or three years ago, where every student entering uh, the front door 
had like a care team. So they had an assigned academic advisor based on their area of study. They had an assigned counselor and, and what the reasons of the purposes of what the counselor does. They had a faculty mentor. They had a list of all of the supportive services. So when they logged into their account, they saw this care group of people saying, hi, this is who I am. I am here to help you if you're having these issues. This is who I am. This is what I do. Um, that way that before a student starts to drop out or before things get bad, that care team job is really to kind of step in and do some type of um, intervention with the student, right? Um, which goes back to the first question that we talked about is oftentimes, and I would say probably more than half, our students don't know what they don't know, right? So if we don't do a good job of promoting these programs, putting it out there, letting students know everything that we have to offer, then they're not going to be successful. Um, and it goes back to barriers. What are the barriers that our students are facing and how can we capture and manage those barriers before things get worse, before they start failing classes? And whether that's an early alert, whether that's working with their faculty mentor, a counselor, career services, that's kind of what the model of what the care team um, is all about. That's so great because it sounds like you're really addressing the students individual barriers from a team approach so that you can identify, you know, if, if a student is struggling for whatever reason, you can really identify, is it because of financial issues? Mm -hmm. Is it because of family issues? Is it uh, an access issue, a transportation issue? Um, but I'm wondering, knowing that this model is still fairly new and based on its implementation and structure, do you see the care team as having an impact on student success at all as of yet? And if so, what are some of the early results you've seen among traditionally underprepared populations as a result of this care team model? Yeah, definitely. Every first year cohort that come there, FTIC students, they all have a care team model. And that's where we've just seen the increase in the number of students participating in uh, tutoring, as I mentioned, for example. So it has completely flipped. So that's why we're seeing such a large number of Black and Hispanic students leading the pack to taking advantage of uh, tutoring and ADA accommodations, that which is another issue. You know, they come in, they have maybe some type of a barrier, and they don't think that there are supportive services in place. Well, sure, of course. If we don't do a good job of sharing information about services available, how can we expect students to utilize them? Just making students aware that support services are there is half the battle. Well, it sounds like you are really focused on changing the narrative about how institutions of higher education provide and inform underprepared and underserved student populations about the support services available to them. It is so great to know that you are doing the necessary work to ensure they have an early opportunity to be successful. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me about how you and your colleagues at HCC are supporting your students through these innovative projects and programs. Um, thank you for having me on. I am so grateful to both of my guests for taking the time to discuss their own experiences with underprepared and underserved student populations. Ms. Hassan from the perspective of a student services administrator and Ms. Georgeson from her perspective as a faculty member. I appreciate their expertise and honesty in describing the ongoing efforts at their own institutions to address the needs of specific student populations, specifically underprepared and underserved students. 
These very important conversations need to continue among educators and policymakers across the nation at all institutions to ensure that real and significant progress can be made to address the needs of all students regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, age, or socioeconomic status. As a higher education administrator myself, I take my role to support students very seriously and commit to engage with other professionals to develop innovative ways that will promote success among underprepared students, as well as those from traditionally underserved populations. Thank you for listening. This podcast series was produced by Paul Eaton. Assistant Professor of Educational Leadership at Sam Houston State University, in conjunction with doctoral scholars enrolled in Higher Education Leadership 7372, Diversity and Culture in Higher Education, during fall 2020. You can contact Paul Eaton via email at pwe003 at shsu.edu. Content and perspectives presented in this series are intended for educational use. You can download a copy of episode transcripts and show notes at http colon backslash backslash bit.ly backslash anti-racist college. The views and opinions expressed on this program and series are those of the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Sam Houston State University. Thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Building the Anti-Racist College and University. Mm -hmm.